Hey everybody, welcome to Dear Asian Americans. This is your host, Jerry Wan. May 12th here, second day of the premiere of Asian Americans on PBS. Yesterday, we got to hear from the legendary Renee Tajima Pena, series producer of the show, and watched the first two hours of the amazing documentary, sharing so many stories that were new to me as well. Uh, really enjoyed learning about the various histories, the um, unfortunate beginnings of some of how our Asian American ancestors uh, immigrated to this country and contributed to what we know to be America today. Uh, tonight, the show continues for its final third, or hours three, four, and five of the show. Really, really looking forward to it. Premieres on PBS tonight and also streaming across the PBS platform. So I highly, highly encourage you to check it out. Hashtag Asian and PBS. And let us know if you're watching. Would love to engage with you. Today, my guest is Jessica Chen, founder and CEO of Soulcast Media, who is celebrating their two-year anniversary of the founding of the company, specializing in communication strategies and skills for executives, founders, and everybody. Um, really excited to share my conversation with you, um, with Jessica. Let us know what you think about it. Uh, share with your friends. Leave us a comment or send us a DM. We really love to engage with all of you out there. Thanks again for tuning in. Stay safe out there. And here now my conversation with Jessica Chen. Welcome, everybody, to the Year Asian Americans, wherever you are in the world and whenever you may be listening to this. We really hope that you're staying safe and that you're healthy, that you're staying inside. Uh, weather's getting warm. It is in the middle of May. So please, please, please stay home and we will get to uh, hang out with each other very, very soon. One of the things that I think fascinating about Asian culture is in the world of communication. And I think as many of us have experienced, whether you were born here and have had to experience the duality of communication skills, nuances, and just things that you say or don't do um, at home or at school or at work, or if you uh, immigrated here or moved here at an early or an, at an older age and have had to almost relearn a brand new set of skills, it is actually one of the most important things that we have to do learn, we have to master or continue to learn uh, to function in this world, whether you are a student, whether you are a professional or anything else. And so my guest today has made a career out of not only exercising and learning the best of the communication skills that she believes that we need to learn and master in the context of living in America. Uh, now she set up a company to help other people, uh, both in person and at scale, uh, to get better at communicating with each other. Um, so badass that LinkedIn has actually asked her, and she has created a video series, part of their LinkedIn learning platform to talk about communication. So very, very excited to have my friend Jessica Chen on the show. Hi, Jessica. Hey, Jerry. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome. I think, you know, communication is something that we may not really necessarily be taught as we're grown up, um, particularly when it comes to uh, growing up in an Asian household communication in the outside world or in the real world. Um, there's so many different nuances and layers of um, confidence. And I mean, let's even start with, um, at least in many of our native tongues, the way you talk to somebody older, or younger, or the same age is different. The way you say certain things, or you're not allowed to say certain things in front of certain people at all. So um, almost seems like learning the communication nuances is an additional language in addition to the language itself. Very curious to learn what drove that passion for you not only to begin your career in media, um, exemplifying the key communication skills on camera and behind, 
So let's roll it way back into Jessica's earlier years. I think it provides a fantastic context of how you came to be. Um, share with us how the Chen family moved to America. Um, where did Jessica grow up and what were your early childhood years like? Great question. I actually am a very firm believer of how we grew up. Our background, our childhood really does affect our belief system, especially when we're younger. And that belief system can change. So in terms of what I was, you know, the belief system I was born with, it did come primarily with some of the things I was taught when I was young. So I was actually born and raised in California. My parents were the ones that immigrated to California from Taiwan in the 70s. Growing up at home, you know, we spoke Chinglish, little Mandarin English. Um, they spoke Taiwanese. I can understand Taiwanese. And, you know, I grew up fairly traditional, I would say. You know, they instilled a lot of the traditional Asian um, beliefs, you know, respect elders, deference to authority, right? Don't argue, harmony, <laughs> you know, kind of like those types of very Asian principles. Um, the one really interesting thing that a lot of people are surprised about is I grew up a very shy kid and I actually had a hard time communicating with even my family members, not so much my parents and my brother. It was more like once we left the house, even talking to people who are older, like my aunts, I always would just hide behind my parents and they would always have to be the one to force me, Jessica, say hi to your auntie. You know, <laughs> they like have to coach me to do it because I would just be so terrified of it. I don't even know why, but regardless, that was just my personality. So it, that was kind of like my background. I grew up very traditional, but, you know, in California. So obviously could, you know, engage in English and all that stuff, but also very shy. And I think that also manifested in school. I was often the quiet child. And I remember very fondly my parents coming back home from parent-teacher conference, I don't know, third, fourth grade or something like that. And I was super eager to hear what the teacher had to say about me. And my parents said, your teacher said you're really quiet and that you need to talk more. You need to participate more. And I remember feeling so conflicted when they came home and told me that because sometimes it wasn't that I didn't want to speak. You know, when you're a shy, introverted person, it's not that you don't want to talk. It's just that sometimes you battle within yourself of like what to say, how to say, and before you know it, you just don't say anything at all, mm -hmm. right? So I think that was a lot of what I felt in my childhood. And that actually laid the foundation of kind of what I do today, which we can talk about um, in a little bit. That description of Jessica now and the Jessica that I met and know today are, are night and day because now <laughs> you actually are in the business of coaching other people to come out of their shell and to put their best self forward um, through audible and through nonverbal cues. Um, when did you feel like you came out of your shell and introvertism and extrovertism aren't binary things, nor are they mutually exclusive. But mm -hmm. when did you feel that you were confident enough to actually have your voice be reflective of who you were? So I think it all, so I've always, growing up, I always wanted to be a better speaker. You know, you, you see it out there, you know, you see people who are so engaging, who are great at motivating people, who are just so eloquent. You know, I saw that as a child and mm -hmm. I was like, dang, how do they do that? Right. And I think just having that curiosity sparked a lot of interest in me wanting to learn it. But I really never got to learn it until I actually went to college. So in college, this was when all of us had to decide what kind of career path we wanted to take. I went to UC San Diego and 
while I was in college, I already had some interest in journalism, but UC San Diego does not have a journalism program. So I already felt kind of discouraged in that sense. I was like, oh man, how am I going to compete with people who are graduating from, you know, USC's, you know, really renowned journalism program when I'm at UC San Diego. But, you know, fortunately, I didn't let that discourage me too much because I ended up just doing internships. I entered at the local um, station in San Diego. And that was when I was really exposed to people who were really good at communicating. And I remember shadowing uh, reporters and shadowing anchors. And I remember this one reporter I shadowed. She was probably the first one. And again, I was like, I don't know, 19, 20 years old and like fascinated with this industry. And I just watched her go out and interview people. And the way she would get people to, you know, share their ideas, feel comfortable opening up to her, her confidence, it would, I was enamored. I was like, oh my gosh, like I saw it firsthand. I saw it in the works. And I was just like, man, to get from where I am today to where she is, I'm like, this is like a huge gap. But I was pretty much hooked, I would say, ever since I started shadowing these people in the news industry. And that's actually when I committed. I was like, I mean, I love journalism for what it is as an essence. You know, I love the idea of going around, telling stories, interviewing people, learning about issues. When you're a journalist without a specific beat, you do become kind of a mini expert in a lot of different industries. And I loved that as well. So I, that was like the foundation of journalism that I liked, but I loved the other aspect of journalism, which was this communication skills, the presentation, the writing. And I felt if I wanted to learn how to be a better communicator, there's no better industry to do it in than in this one. So that's when I decided I want to do this. I want to be a broadcast journalist. Being a broadcast journalism or being a broadcast journalist rather, um, (laughs) in a traditional Asian household list of careers our parents wish we had, um, isn't necessarily like way off the menu, but it's also not on the first page of the menu. Um, I think it's one of those things that, at least in certain cultures, is very lauded, right? Because it is very respected and respectful career. Did they push you when you went to UC San Diego to pursue certain things? Did you have to pivot? Or what did you want to go? What did you go into UC San Diego thinking that you wanted to do before you discovered the beautiful world of journalism? So some of the other ideas I toyed with was business. My dad's a businessman, so I was always fascinated with that. Um, Because his business was in Asia, you know, we moved around, lived in Asia for a little bit. I got to actually see some of the way he really engaged with other businessmen and how he ran his business. I remember growing up, um, he would actually bring my brother and I into his office. We would just like sit there and be free labor. You know, it was just like, so anyway, the idea of doing business seemed very fascinating. But here's the interesting thing. My parents did not force me one way or the other to choose a career path, which I feel very fortunate of. But, and I don't know if this is something that people have experienced as well. You can let me know, Jerry. But growing up, my parents did watch the news a lot. It was a tradition of ours that we would sit and watch the 10 o'clock news. And at the time, it was KTVU because we were living up in the Bay Area. We would watch the 10 o'clock news on KTVU and... um, it was like, we did this every night. And I remember my mom would always say, Jessica, you know, it would be so nice. Maybe one day you can, you know, be like those people on TV and I can watch you every night and I can know that you are safe. It's sometimes these little things, these comments, these fleeting thoughts that just stay in your mind. It's meaningless at the time, but it just stays. This was one of them for me. And I think, um, I, I remember when I was interviewing 
for my first news job. And I remember even bringing up this story with the news director when he was interviewing me. And I think when I first got that news job, I was like, wow, I feel like a full circle moment kind of thing, you know? (laughs) But again, I was fortunate. My parents never pushed me one way or the other. I mean, the fact that your mom wanted you to be on the 10 o'clock news so she would know where you were at that time is is a very, very mom thing to say, regardless of, oh, I think you'd be great at it, at least. No, it didn't matter. We, just yeah, we know where you are, um, obviously, well well before the time of smartphones and tracking devices and, and instant, instant communication. Right. Um, we didn't have that. So just seeing so, on TV was her sure way of knowing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Who were your journalism role models growing up? Uh, we know of a few iconic Asian American women in the media space that we grew up watching. Um, who did you look up to, not only in the sense of people you saw on TV, but people that you got to meet personally that you wanted to follow in footsteps of? So I always kind of knew journalism was some sort of, you know, I, I definitely could tell I gravitated towards journalism more so than my friends. And the reason why I know this is because even in middle school, so I don't know what it'd be like 13, 14 years old at the time, I remember being very excited for Friday nights because Friday nights was when 2020 would air. And I would always look forward to watching Barbara Walters tell whatever weekly news story it was. So I remember being fascinated with that. And to be honest, I never told my friends I was interested in that show because I knew they would make fun of me. They're like, why would you watch that? Doesn't it for old people, you know? But no, I loved it. I loved, I don't know, it was just something about it I always enjoyed. And in high school, I ended up, you know, loving watching Oprah. You know, I would think she came on at like four o'clock in the afternoons. And I, I remember I always going home after school and being excited to watch whatever topic she was going to do. So but I know a lot of people love Oprah too, so I'm definitely not alone. But I just remember, you know, those types of, you know, shows and talk shows and, you know, them focusing on specific issues, I have always enjoyed watching. That's very cool. Um, so as most newscasters do, you have to go where the jobs are. And if you're starting out in the business, New York City, LA, the big major markets are not oftentimes giving you the opportunities that um, you may deserve, or at least it's just the way of, of the industry, right? Um, tell us about that part of your early, early career. Um, you've, you've worked in big cities, small cities in different continents. Um, Mm -hmm. tell us about that journey and then the challenge to learn a new city, learn its people, learn its culture. Um, what was that like for you? And what did you learn from moving a bunch of times early on? Yeah, so you're right part of this industry and rising up is the willingness to move around in different cities. And my first news job was working for NBC in Reno, Nevada. I was 21 years old. I moved to that city by myself and it was so difficult, Jerry. Like I can't even tell you how hard it was to live in Reno, Nevada by yourself when you're 21 years old while all your friends are living in San Francisco, Seattle, New York. I'm like, hey guys, anyone want to visit me in Reno? Nobody would visit me in Reno. You know, so anyways, but that in itself was tough, but it was one of the sacrifices I knew I would have to make if I wanted to rise up in this industry. I stayed there for about a year. And then after that, I was fortunate enough, I ended up moving to New York. And there I stayed and about four years or so, um, stayed there for almost four years. I worked for... Time Warner Cable News, I think they're Spectrum News today. Um, I worked for them for a few years. And then 
made it back to San Diego where I started and I worked for the ABC station there. And here's what I have to say from like an Asian perspective. Um, Every news station you work at, you'll see that, you know, they do want diversity. It's important for them to hire talent, you know, from different backgrounds. But regardless, there's always only going to be maybe like one or two or three of your minority type, right? And it's obvious. Everyone notices. And sometimes you're just like, oh, man, am I just like the token Asian person to fill their quota of having diversity? You know, you definitely think that. But, you know, for me, I try to always think of it from a positive point of view. Like, I'm so lucky to be, you know, working here. And, you know, I also wouldn't see it as kind of, um, you know, again, I would try to see it more from a positive point of view and try to find opportunities because I was Asian, Asian American to actually find Asian Amer- Asian American stories to tell. And for me, who better to push it than me, right? Um, so I would try to use that as an advantage versus a disadvantage. Are there any stories that come to mind, whether you proposed it and you got to tell a story that otherwise would not have been shared or a story that was planned on being shared, but your perspective made it a different outcome or you added perspective to it to change sort of the story and the voice of of the people whose story you were trying to share? So I can't think of a specific story, but I can tell you that when I was living in Reno, Nevada, there weren't a lot of Asians living there. But the few times where I would stumble upon, let's say, uh, like a local small mom and pop shop that was run by Asians, I feel like for me, because at the time I had to get to know my community, I had to immerse myself. I felt like I, because I saw that they were also a minority in this city, I had, you know, the patience, the interest to want to actually get to know them and see if we could potentially do an interesting story to highlight them. Versus, let's say, you know, one of my other colleagues, maybe they wouldn't have, you know, noticed it as much. But for me, I was like, oh, man, you know, this is actually a really cool business that's run by an Asian family. Can we think of a story or something, you know? So in some ways, I always try it. I mean, a lot of times it wasn't successful. But for me, at least I would try and pitch these types of stories, at least for it to be considered. So. I think now, um, if we look at uh, particularly in the major cities, um, let's you know take a look at where, where you grew up in Northern California. We have pretty much somebody that looks like me or you at every one of the major stations. And particularly given the crap that we're going through now, um, they are really, really positively using their platform to share stories of both the positive things that Asian Americans in the community are doing to help the frontline healthcare workers and those affected by COVID, um, but also to really bring context and attention that otherwise would not get airtime to some of the negative stories that uh, we hear about in our personal circles and based on the communities that we belong to, but may never have made it onto the 10 o'clock news because Mm. maybe we don't speak up. Maybe we don't, maybe the right person isn't showing up with the camera to ask Mm -hmm. those right questions to, to the people. Um, how have you seen diversity overall change in newsrooms since you started being a part of them 10 years ago? I do think that there is more of a, you know, recognition in having that diversity. Like, like I said, I don't think it was ever a question of whether we should or shouldn't. I think it was always like, yeah, of course, diversity is important. 
And I want to believe, so as you know, I'm not in news anymore, but I want to believe that the people who are managing the newsrooms, right, you know, the executive producers, the news directors, you know, when they see a story that shows, you know, some sort of um, conflict or, you know, minority hardship, that they're not just going to think, oh, you know, it's not that interesting. I would hope that these people who are making these decisions have more of that awareness of like, this is still a story, you know, like it needs to be told. So, you know, that's what I can say, because again, I'm not in the newsroom, but I have worked for, you know, some really fantastic bosses who, who really were interested in that, you know, but I've also worked for some who, you know, really cared more about the, if it bleeds, it leads kind of stories, too. you know, so it's both. (laughs) Um, From a a sort of a pivot off of that story, I think is now uh, much more so than when, when you got your first news job about 10 years ago, we have so many different ways to get news. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned when you were growing up, you know, you're watching one of the local channels up in the Bay. Um, right. In that part of time, there was only a finite number of channels. Yeah. Then the cable news channels came and there were still just a finite number of them. And now there are, and, and this comes with the risk of fake news and crappy news and crazy news. Um, but there seem the, the barrier to entry to share news has almost gone down to zero um, because anybody with a camera or a phone can claim to share news. And I guess in general, how do you see storytelling changing and what did you observe as digital became a larger part of these new storytelling, I guess, medium portfolio of availability of options and how did you see the digital part of it playing a more larger role into the storytelling in the news world? Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to say, oh, it's terrible because now there's just, it's everywhere now, you know, but it's also, you know, it's hard to say that it's like, you know, great too. So I always try to see, I for me, I'm always like, I want to try to see both sides. I don't know, that's like my journalism line. Like there's only two sides to the story, right? You know, in some senses, I think it's fantastic. People are feeling the freedom now that they can easily create their own, you know, talk show or, you know, it's super easy now, you know, and I feel like for them to even feel confident enough to pull up their phone, set up their podcast, for example, I think that in itself, you know, should be commended, right? It's that you feel you have um, something to say and you are willing to put in the work and effort to put it together and put it out for anybody in the world to listen to. If you are willing to put in that effort, you know, despite what your views are, you know, it's fine. Just do it. You know, you're going to attract certain people, but you're also not going to attract certain people, you know, but I think, and you're going to attract some haters, some lovers, like, you know, you're going to get them all, you know, but you have to be aware of like the criticism that will always follow whenever you put yourself out there. So is it good? Is it bad? I mean, again, if you feel confident enough that you have something to say, I'm always saying, go for it, you know, but just be aware. It's never always going to be easy. So this is a, a much deeper conversation for perhaps a different time. But it is the, the fact that you get lovers and haters out of reporting news, which by definition is fact that you are <laughs> reporting something as you see it. And just that small uh, sprinkling of um perspective or subjectivity or opinion 
makes or breaks what people think about you and everything else you've said, you know, for the 95% of what was actual truth, I think is a, it is a fascinating lesson that we are, we are seeing um, as news happens live. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, depending on where you get your news, you, you see the world differently, which I think is fascinating. Um, you got an award when you were working in San Diego, um, a little tiny award uh, called the Emmy. Um, <laughs> tell us about that. How did that come about? Oh my gosh. So the Emmy award for people in broadcast TV is kind of like the, one of the like top awards you can get. Um, it, when I was, I remember when I was starting out in Reno, cause I had just started in the industry. I was like, Oh man, like I feel like it would be impossible to win such a coveted award like that. But I always feel like when you put enough work and effort in and you perfect your craft, you know, and you're patient, you know, you can eventually get there. So that award was, I remember this very clearly. So it was, so I was part of a news team that was covering wildfires in San Diego. So mm-hmm. I, as a reporter, was out in San Diego, literally just feet away from flames and covering kind of like, you know, warning residents to get out, but also covering the damage that was done. And it truly was a team effort in terms of coordinating, you know, and again, this is breaking news, right? When we're airing this. So there's lots of pieces, just, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of moving parts. So that award was basically recognizing that team. So the team I was on, the reporter, the anchor, the producer, who all came together to actually put on a fantastic, informative, breaking news um, show that one specific day. And it got recognized. So that's how we got the Emmy Award. Well, congratulations to you. Um, And and you get to put um, any Emmy award winning journalist on your byline for the rest of your life, which is well-deserved and very, very cool. Um, so about two years ago, um, you ventured away from the newsroom and you, well, share with us what decide, what prompted you wanting to leave the newsroom, eventually wanting to start something for yourself, uh, something amazing that today we know as Wholecast Media. So when I mentioned earlier that one of the reasons why I wanted to get into news was because I felt like there was so much I could learn being in this industry. You know, in addition to telling stories, I really could learn how to build that confidence in how to be a better communicator because, oh my God, if you saw some of my early reports, I was a mess. I could not string together a live story and anxiety would just completely consume me. I would just say, um, 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 all the time. I'm surprised some people even hired me back then. Anyways. I, the bar was very low, so I was not very good. But again, because I was forced into this industry, I had to learn. I mean, that's really, it's a matter of surviving this industry. I truly had to learn the craft of communicating. So, you know, inevitably, the, the years you put in, the experience you have, you will get better. And fortunately, you know, I did get better. And towards the end of my career, um, that was in San Diego, this was when I was starting to figure out Do I want to stay in news and keep kind of jumping around to move up in this industry? Or do I want to finally explore this business side I've always been fascinated with, but I never truly pursued and combine the two and create something that has to do with communications and business? Hmm. So that's essentially how um, Soulcast Media came to be, because I realized that a lot of people want to learn how to be better communicators. They know it's something that they struggle with. But sometimes they don't know where to go. And, you know, and, and especially and this is probably the most important part, having somebody who looks like them, you know, being Asian, 
you know, empathize with some of the things that they struggled with too. If somebody told me that, you know, I don't think I can be a calm, a confident communicator, I will tell them, I know exactly how you feel. I used to think that too. But look, if you put in the time and effort, you absolutely can be good. So Soulcast Media essentially is teaching a lot of the things I learned, a lot of the tactical skills, the techniques I learned in how to be a confident, clear, effective communicator and teaching them this. So that's essentially how Soulcast Media was born. It actually has evolved a little bit, um, but that essentially is the essence is really just try to get people to be confident and good communicators. How did the name Soulcast come about? <laughs> this is actually a very funny story. So I was back at home in the Bay Area. I actually live in Orange County now, but I was back home and my brother is an entrepreneur as well. And this was when I was still formulating what I wanted Soulcast to be without the Soulcast. I didn't know Soulcast that was the name at the time. And I remember sitting on my brother's bed and just going back and forth with him of like, what do I want this name to be? And I remember I had this like sheet of paper out and I was just like combining words, literally just combining some of my favorite words together. And eventually, I, I honestly, I have to go look for that piece of paper. It's probably absurd, some of the names I came up with. But I knew I wanted something that had to do with something that's deeper, more meaningful, more holistic, right? And I knew that word was really nicely encompassed by the word soul. So I knew I wanted soul somewhere because, again, I, I feel like communications is not just you know, the words you say. There's a lot of things that go into it understanding your environment, you know, the context, and then things like body language, tone of voice. So I really feel there's a holistic approach to communicating. So that's where soul came from. And then the cast really came from broadcast. And because I think it's just, I knew, and that's kind of where the media side came from too. I knew I wanted to incorporate some sort of media to, to, to this company that I wanted to form. So I'm like, oh, something with broadcast. But so I was like, do I want it to be soul broadcast? And I was like, no, soul cast. So anyway, mm. that's how I was born. <laughs> very, very cool. And in your mission to help people, uh, some who look like us and some who don't, uh, become better communicators, um, how do you go about that? And how does one come to the conclusion that he or she needs a communications expert in their corner to get better? A lot of my work is one-on-one -on -one. and it's actually what I really do enjoy about, you know, this business that I have. I actually really enjoy meeting one-on-one -on -one with people and sitting down and just, you know, get to know them and know their struggles and know why is it that they struggle with communication. Mm -hmm. So I feel like because I'm so fascinated with talking and listening to people, um, it gives me perspective of pinpointing where I think I can help them. And actually, this is one of the things I always say anytime I'm about to take on a new client. I actually always say, you know, you know, I'm happy to work with you, but you're not going to see change unless you want to change. I mean, I know you want to change, but like, do you really want to change? Like, <laughs> I need you to be okay being vulnerable with me. It's like, it, it, it can get really deep sometimes in these communication sessions, but I only take on people who really are willing to, you know, be open-minded because there's some people who will still resist, you know, they'll argue, be like, no, that's not right. You know, but it's like, 
no, I need you to be open to this whole process. And a lot of the clients I work with in the end, if you look at them from day one to the end of some of our sessions, it's it's so different. And that's actually, as Soulcast Media grows, I don't want to lose this work, yeah. which is this one-on-one, which I love. How much of communication is art and how much of communication is science? Hmm. I would say, you know, it really is 50-50. You know, I can't give, I cannot give more weight to one than the other. You know, there really is tactical skills to communications. You know, um, things like body language, I actually say it's like you you use your hands for certain reasons. You know, you, you take up space for certain reasons. You know, so that's more of like science because sometimes, you know, if you think about it, you can pinpoint when is it the right moment to use your hands, right? The art of the communication really is more things that are felt. And things that are felt are, you know, are you observing how the other person is feeling? Are you aware? And these are things that, you know, can be improved. So it's really 50-50. Communication is one of the things that I think are categorized as a soft skill. It's not a test you can take to master your levels in communication. Part of it is just the repetition of doing it many, many times in a different scenarios and, and, and you organically grow into a better listener, a better um, talker or a better communicator. Um, some people view it as, or I guess some people may approach it with, what is the one thing that I need to learn to become a communicator? There is probably not a secret sauce, but for people who just want one or two things that they can walk away with, after listening to this, so they can become a better communicator, what should they start to focus on? Because it's, they're not going to get better by listening to this, but what can they start practicing or paying attention to themselves? It's funny. Um, The one answer that I have for this, and it is so important is, it's two things. Being a very good listener. And the second is awareness. So many times, and this is, you know, again, there's always two buckets when it comes to communicating. There's the communicating where, you know, stakes are low. What do you want for dinner? You know, those types of conversation, you know, inconsequential, right? But then the communications that I generally focus on are like those crucial conversations where they're, you know, the stakes are high, you know, change is happening. You're trying to influence, you know, things like that. So in that sense, listening, being aware is so important because so many times people are just thinking of the next thing they want to say versus actually really trying to understand where the other person is coming from. That's very, very good advice. Obviously, as, as the name of the show describes, most of our listeners, um, if not all, are people who look like me and you, who may have grown up in perhaps traditional, more traditional than others, depending on where and when you grew up. Um, But there seems to be a lot of challenges that we grow up with based on some things that we talked about earlier in terms of respect, age-based respect, the way you talk to certain people, the way that sometimes you are allowed or given permission to speak versus not confidence, self-doubt, the ability to do or dream whatever you want, or a lot of different things that we, we grow up with. What are some things that you've observed in working with clients, um, seeing people, obviously your own lived in experience as well, that um, we should start to focus on ourselves, that maybe unlearning is perhaps a word that we want to use or reteaching ourselves some uh, 
communication guidelines or um, just perspectives on what are some things that we can do without and move away from that we were taught in our, you know, mostly traditional households? So this is speaking from my own personal experience. I feel that growing up Asian, there was always a lot of this fear that I felt growing up, like, you know, fear of like, if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. If you don't study hard, this is the consequence, right? And I just feel it made me very, um, I guess, insecure growing up in terms of like, you know, how did I, you know, how do I present myself? If I do this, am I going to get in trouble? Is this right? Is it going to be wrong? And it just made me like a very fearful person, you know, and growing up that way, you know, again, I perhaps was it, you know, the pressure of, you know, wanting of uh, being successful when you're younger? Is it the pressure, you know, again, that pressure can really make you just question things a lot. When you grow up and you go into the working world, that fear can be really crippling because all the doubts you had, you know, growing up, when you bring that into the working world of like, am I good enough? You know, is somebody smarter than me? Are they better than me? That really affects your confidence, you know? And the one thing that I learned, especially in the news industry, because there are some really talented people who are so well-rounded in the news industries, again, so well-spoken, puts together fantastic stories. I learned if I allowed myself to continue to have all these negative mental chatters in my head of, you know, they're better than me, you know, should I do this or am I going to get criticized? That's just going to hold me back even more. So one of the biggest things that mentally I had to fight through, especially when I was starting out, was getting rid of that kind of negative self-talk. There was a lot of it, but I really had to train myself to not think that way anymore. How did you do it? And what are some tips that you can give for people who may still have those negative self-talk moments? Yeah, well, it's not overnight. And here's the thing. It doesn't entirely go away because as you grow, there's going to be new challenges, especially like, let's say you're going into a new territory or a new industry, you're starting a new project. There's always going to be people better than you, but that's the thing. There's always going to be people better than you. There's always going to be people more successful than you. So are you just going to continue to allow yourself to always feel second best? You know, acknowledge that there are people more talented you than you, learn from them, and then just keep going. And that's kind of one of the, you know, if, if I can say anything, it's just, you know, learn from the people you admire but, and don't see them as a threat. Just try to learn from them because if you see them as a threat, you're only going to feel worse about yourself. Very, very good and, and thoughtful pieces of uh, perspective and advice there. You got to do something very, very cool last year. People might say, hey, that voice sounds familiar, that you know, her, her face looks very familiar. You're extremely active on LinkedIn. Um, that's where you and I had actually met. Um, we're probably one of the very handful of uh, hyperactive Asian American LinkedIn uh, content creators, which is a fascinating discussion to have uh, for anybody who's listening. <laughs> Just find us on LinkedIn and we're happy to talk to you. Um, you got to get involved with LinkedIn in an official way by being the voice, the coach, and the the host of a series of LinkedIn learning videos. Um, how did that come about? Which I think is a fascinating backstory. And and what brings you the most joy when you get to share with an unknown audience on a large platform like LinkedIn? 
<laughs> oh my gosh, so many thoughts about that. Uh, so how that initially started with the LinkedIn learning was about right after I had just launched Soulcast Media, I knew I wanted to do stuff with video just because that was my background. I was very comfortable talking in front of the camera and engaging with the camera. But at the time I was like, do I want to post videos on YouTube? Do I want to post videos on Instagram? Again, my brother, I have to give him all the credit. He was, he suggested that people weren't posting videos so much on LinkedIn at the time, but if you did post on LinkedIn, it actually gained a lot of traction. And I thought about it and I was like, actually, that's perfect because my audience our business folks. That is who I want to talk to. So a lot of my videos when I first started out were just me holding up my phone and just recording myself and just posting it on LinkedIn. What did I talk about? I talked about communications. I talked about presenting. I talked about confidence. And true enough, the algorithm proved that, yeah, you posted a video, people saw it. And that's actually how I started engaging with the LinkedIn community. And as a result, uh, LinkedIn Learning found my content. They they liked the videos I was producing. They liked that I had experience presenting on camera. So they asked me to work with them. I mean, obviously, we we the show exists, and what I enjoy doing the most is to celebrate and to highlight the people who are um, putting themselves out there to put the content out there to put ourselves out there. So that yes, there's a lot of benefit for us individually in our self-worth and our feelings of accomplishment and value and all that good stuff. But there are people that look like me and you that are watching, uh, perhaps younger versions of ourselves who go on LinkedIn and um, there's plenty of other people that don't look like me and you. And we may be teaching the same content, but when it comes out of your mouth, the different context through which it is displayed means more than the content itself because there's just a mutual understanding of Oh yeah, her mom's probably like mine, mine, you know, and and just all the crazy things that um, that's what bonds our community together through shared experiences. So I want to say thank you because when I go on platforms like LinkedIn, there's a lot of noise, and a lot of that noise comes from self-promoting people who see it as an ends to a means or a means to an end, rather, in terms of I am creating content to put money into my pocket in one way, shape, or form. And a lot of it is similar recycled content under similar themes of motivation, inspiration, and you know life hacks and all these other things. So once in a rare while, when we see people that look like us, who you know and you can sense that have similar backgrounds, similar challenges as we've navigated through life. Um, so thank you for putting yourself out there and creating content that um, has been meaningful for me um, you and I share mutual friends and acquaintances who've also benefited from your work directly and indirectly. So I think it's awesome. I think it is awesome to see people um, who my daughter can look up to one day and say, you know, somebody that looks like me, could look like me, um, produces content and teaches people and is a trusted resource. When we grew up in a world where an Asian woman may not have had the permission or at least the expectation that she can do something like that. So Super awesome. Thank you for all that you've done and, and what you continue to do. What is one thing that you would like to share to a younger version of Jessica out there somewhere who looks at you, looks at perhaps um, it's Dion in San Francisco or Stephanie up there or Greg Lee or somebody who looks like themselves on TV and says, maybe I want to become a broadcast journalist one day. What kind of advice do you have for that young person? 
whatever interests you, whether it's broadcast journalism, whether it's, you know, learning to become an engineer, whether it's starting a project, my whole attitude with approaching things like that is really just to try it out and start. Um, that has always been, you know, my going motto in life, especially when I was um, deciding when I wanted to, whether or not I wa- wanted to get into broadcast journalism, because a part of me wasn't sure if it was for me, right? But at least I could tell myself that I tried and I did it and I will never have regretted and wondered. So I think that's my advice. It's, that's one of the worst things, right? To always wonder. And, you know, how do you get rid of that? Just try, you know, little by little. It doesn't have to be big steps. Minimize that negative talk and just do it. Mm-hmm. Regardless of the results. Um, sometimes it works out. Sometimes you learn something. Um, I want to end the conversation the way that we end all of our conversations here on the show, which is a tip of the cap to the show name. Uh, the Asian Americans is my vision of sharing a love letter to us, from us, and for all of us. It is really a culmination of decades of me growing up in America, hoping that I had better or more or more perspectives on who I could be, what I could pursue. And we're trying to do that here on the show by having a variety of people that look very different from one another, that have different stories, um, to give hope and to give uh, stories to my daughter, um, for whom this show is dedicated, and for everybody else out there to really start to see themselves in whatever light that they can dream to. So um, write a letter to our community and say whatever it is in your heart that you'd like to share with us. And so I will start the letter. And if you could help us finish out the show by completing the letter, Dear Asian Americans. If you ever feel lonely, do not feel that you really are the only one doing what you want to do. You know, loneliness is one of those feelings that is so crippling that you just don't know if anybody else can relate to you, understand how you feel. And maybe that person isn't necessarily right in front of you, but chances are the things that you feel, the things that you've experienced have been felt by other people before. And in order to get over the hump of loneliness, I truly feel is to just start something, do something, get going, get moving. So. Thank you. Uh, particularly relevant words of advice as many of us are staying home to protect other people, um, to do what's right by all of us as a community. Um, Jessica, thank you for making time to share with us your story and your perspectives today. Um, where can we find you or can we learn more about what Soulcast Media does and what it can do for somebody listening out there? Yes. So as you know, I'm probably um, most active on LinkedIn. So please find me there. Um, I'm always posting content regarding communications, confidence. Um, you can also check out my website, soulcastmedia.com to find out more about what we do as a business. But again, I'm on social media, Instagram, Facebook, but most of my content's LinkedIn. Search Jessica Chen on LinkedIn. Your handles across Instagram and Facebook are at Jessica Chen page. So go check her out. Um, she's got great content. Um, and if you feel bold, send her a message, go say hello. As somebody who creates content myself, um, those little notes, even if it's just a hello, uh, they keep you going. I know that more people watch and observe and consume. And sometimes it is the most frustrating thing. Like just say, hi, I, I see the numbers. We see the numbers. Um, so reach out. We're, we're humans on the other end of the keyboard and we do this and we create things to help, um, share what we've been through and to bring our friends along for the ride. So 
Thanks again, Jessica. Best of luck to you as you navigate the challenging times we're all going through um, as you grow Soulcast into a very impactful business that helps very many people communicate better in this challenging environment and beyond. Uh, Thanks for all that you do. Thank you so much, Jerry. Thanks for tuning in to my conversation with Jessica. Really great to see a fellow Asian American excelling in not just entrepreneurship, but something that many of us have struggled with, which is communication, particularly communication in the corporate world or the startup world where um, sometimes we feel like that is a disadvantage or a challenge for many of us. And so thank you to Jessica for what you do and for continuing to help many of us get better at communicating at the workplace and in our personal lives. If that story was inspiring to you and you had a lot of fun listening to it, let us know that you're listening to it. Share with us on Instagram, tag us, share with a friend or two, and let us know in the comment section of Facebook or Instagram, or send us a DM if you have any comments, thoughts, or suggestions. If you want to apply to come on the show yourself, uh, please check the link on the Instagram page or just shoot me a note. Thanks again. Enjoy watching Asian Americans on PBS tonight, and I will see you tomorrow here on Dear Asian Americans. Thanks again so much. Have a good one.